0: This episode is brought to you by Tanmay Shah. That's me. Best way to support this show is by sharing this with your friends and dropping a comment and review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can become my patron and a sponsor. That's not all. You can buy Rocklass merchandise and NFTs and much more. See all the links in description for details. Rocklass Radio, Rocklass.
1: Rocklas.
0: Rocklas. Rocklas.
1: Rocklas. Rocklas. Rocklas Radio with Tanay
0: Shah. Hello there. Welcome to another episode of Rocklas Radio. On today's show, we have with us Shiruk Amin, who is such a warm and kind person to talk to. I've got to meet her in London, in NFT London. She is such a veteran artist. She has been invited in many universities and events to be a VIP guest and curate the shows. She has curated her own artworks around the world. She has done her first NFT exhibition in Kuwait, WAGMI, which I got to be a part of too. So thanks for that. She has given an interview at BBC, and she has a huge, I will share the links below, and um, I It'll take me a few minutes to read out all her achievements. But in spite of that, she is so kind and humble to uh, join us today. And she's always vocal and bold about what she believes in and the passion which we are following. I'm glad we got to connect through NFTs. Shuru, so glad to have you. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here on the show. Thank you, Tanmay. It's a pleasure to have met you in London and gotten to know you in person, IRL. It was amazing. And I'm happy that we are reconnecting here.
0: Amazing. I. This is also a consecutive episode on KISS. So I let's talk about that directly, about your Hearts of uh, King, which is you said which was inspired by clement's case so i'm going to pull it up on my screen and we would love to hear about uh your process behind it sure
1: absolutely so the so this yeah yeah
0: um do you see it one second i
1: do not see it no I could give a little intro while you're pulling it up. Yeah. So, uh, the King of Hearts um, is an acrylic painting, originally, that is about uh, two meters by one meter seventy. It was painted as part of a collection called We'll Build the City on Art and Love. Um, It was after my show my uh, 2012 show was shut down by the authorities in Kuwait on the pre- on the false premises that my work is blasphemous and pornographic, um, and instills immorality in society. These were all these are all quotations, quotes of what was said about my work, um, and so I wanted to to actually show. An image that was absolutely beautiful and what I thought was beautiful, which is pure love. And as you see the the Arabian man is kissing the Arabian woman Um, in a dark background, out of the darkness of their existence, there comes these pure white flowers growing uh, symbolically amongst them. So their love is pure despite the darkness that they exist in. Um, Giving hope and Showing how important love is, and trying to instigate the concept of love conquers all love wins um, and put away put aside hatred and negativity and um, uh, you know uh, prejudices and judgment and all that so it's really a, a very honest, pure message that is really advocating. Uh, Love in all its formats whether it's passionate romantic love whether it's love for family whether it's love for country love for uh, Humanity love for animals love for the environment. It really is simply about pure love and This painting caused such a ruckus and caused such an and for the West it would appear What is the big deal? There's not even any naked skin here. You can't even see them properly kissing what is the big deal? Why was this painting banned? Why was this artist shut down? And it's very simple. Think of it this way. In, an, in our Arab Muslim society, uh, it is illegal to show PDA, you know, public displays of affection. So if you are in public, you would never, ever, ever see a man and woman kissing or hugging, perhaps, perhaps just holding hands if they were married. They may hold hands. Um, That's about it. So even at home, within the nucleus of the family, behind closed doors, uh, children would never see their parents kiss or be intimate with each other, ever. It's just, just unheard of. And so this image caused such a ruckus because for once, the whole world can actually see what it looks like when a Muslim Arabic man kisses a Muslim Arabic woman. And it's it's just shocked them. It just totally ruffled their feathers. They totally were offended by it and were taken aback and and thought, whoa, that's not a scene that we're supposed to see. You know, why is she showing this to us? How how dare she put it out there for everyone to see the comments? I pinned it on my Instagram. The comments are I had to delete a lot of comments that were too hateful and too negative, uh, I, I left a few that were critical, if it's just critical, i leave it, if it's hateful and nasty and hurtful, I will delete it and block them, um, but you know, people would comment things like, this is uh, Aib, which is a sort of the Arabic word for um, shameful, okay, uh, and then this is Haram, which is the Arabic word for like forbidden in Islam, Um, and so many things like that, and then there was just criticism that this is an ugly image. Why are you showing this ugly image? This is an image that should be only, you know, in sex behind closed doors or something, which is crazy, absolutely insane to me, and I'm sure insane to you as well, if you think about it. So yeah, kind of in a nutshell, that was the story behind it, and for me, because it was banned, and it was shut down, and It became actually iconic in my career, in my oeuvre as an artist. It became one of my most iconic paintings. Kind of like how Klimt's Kiss was, this became my kiss. And um, you'll find it everywhere. There's people who send me pictures of them in my DMs. They've got it as their screensaver in their Apple Watch. They've got it as a screensaver on their mobile phones. Some people have just kind of downloaded it and printed it and put it up in posters in their bedroom. There's some people that actually copied it and sold it illegally. Um, It's everywhere. Some people have put it on tote bags. Like I should have been making that kind of money. (laughs) Why did I not think of any of that, you know? So it's kind of crazy how it went crazy, which is why when I got into NFTs in in 2020 and started minting in early 2021, I said the first thing I got to do is, you know, do an edition of 10 NFTs of King of Hearts. That's the first thing I got to do. and that's so i did that i i did a, a a collection of nfts uh 10 editions of king of hearts um but yeah uh, it, it's it's crazy so that's kind of in a nutshell the story of king of hearts
0: and also i uh, also you had done the backer tokens at fandify which you had another episode and we yes. gave you a shout out on that episode looking at this work then with arun menti so uh that was a great initiative and definitely yes. Uh, capitalize on the fame of this work it is totally amazing i i mean i'm not surprised but i find it funny that the very conservative uh islamic muslim world is what comments it is having i'm just keen were it just the men who are commenting or did you get comment from women as well on this
1: this is the irony. Um, it's not just the men, it's also the women. And I feel, I have to say the truth that with, with my experiences with being a band-censored artist and the comments I get, um, many women propagate the patriarchy of the men. The patriarchy would not survive and would not stand if it was not propagated and supported by women, by the way. This is a fact. I'm all for women empowerment, you know me, I'm in the web three, I'm all about supporting women in web three and, and calling for them to, you know, onboard them and help them out and everything. I'm, I'm, you know, a feminist and all that, but the truth has to be told that we need to educate a lot of the women as well, how this is not serving them. Um, And unfortunately, uh, the reality is so many hateful messages I get from women um and so many um so many women are supporting the 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 unjust let's say regulations that are put forth by men in our society and uh, truth be told these regulations would not be upheld would not stand and be supported if it weren't for the amount of women that are propagating and supporting them
0: mm-hmm i so one has to be there and live in those society to actually feel not just intellectually understand what you have gone through or um, what response you have been getting to this uh, but let's try to uncover as much as possible yeah. here in in this in this painting as well um, there's hijab right people in the middle east wear an islamic world, wear hijab which is we call it burqa which is which is from head to toe which covers the woman in black right so you can see some clothes here and her head is not covered and you can still see some skin so what was the thought behind that you rather the man is completely covered
1: yes the man is dressed super traditional uh the woman is dressed with abaya so in kuwait you don't have to have your head covered with hijab you have an option to be hijabi or not you uh, don't have to be don't have to have the veil that's more of a cultural thing rather than a religious thing by the way. Islam does not uh, advocate the veil, uh, but culture does okay um, so I wanted her to represent the middle ground. she's not a fully uncovered woman, so then if people look at the painting, they'll think oh yeah she's 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 a bad woman, of course she's going to be kissing this man. <laughs> I didn't want that kind of mentality. And I also didn't want her to be a full hijabi woman because I wanted her to be kind of moderate, that she Mm. takes from both sides of the society. So she, for me, symbolizes the entire country because she's covered with abaya, that black cloth, which covers her head as well when she wants to, but she's put it down for the kiss. But usually she will have it on her head and that covers her fully. Um, So that's why. So I wanted her... Dressed to be peeking, she's very elegant, she's an elegant woman. Uh, the shoes are a designer shoe, the dress is a designer dress, you know. But the abaya, she's just put it down and is covering her from the top until the bottom with one leg peeking, kind of giving that kind of sensual touch for
0: mm-hmm. the kiss,
1: you know. Um, that she's really into it. The one leg up, it's a very symbolic thing of a woman really be- being into the man when she lifts a leg up it's It's an iconic gesture, really, and it's it's instinctive, actually, for women. Um, so I wanted to be very feminine, very soft, very passionate, very romantic, very pure, um, And the way he's holding her, I made sure both his arms, both his hands can show the way he's the other hand has come from a, across her body and holding her in a grip as if to not ever want to let her go. Mm -hmm. And the other one is more aggressive and possessive, how he's holding her like that. So there's one soft hand that's very romantic uh, and passionate and one very aggressive, possessive hand, because that's also part of the character of the Arab man, which is uh, very overly protective, overly possessive of his, his his woman. OK, uh, so I wanted all these nuances and not everybody would understand these nuances, uh, except people in the culture. They would definitely read into it and understand. And maybe that's why they were offended because of all these details. Um, but, yeah, I, I love it. I love explaining those nuances to the Western world so they can really, really understand why people are so, you know, um, is offended this, by this. Yeah.
0: Is this phenomena common? Across the Middle East, or Kuwait is a bit progressive in that way, or a bit behind in that way. What would you say? That Kuwait is
1: progressive
0: compared to other Middle Eastern countries, mm. UAE, Qatar, and other places. Bahrain. See, I will tell you this painting, yeah. or even Iraq or Iran. Is this uh, is Kuwait a bit more progressive in their thoughts and thinking and living, or? Is, is this painting represents the whole complete Middle East?
1: Um, I would say the painting represents the whole of the Middle East. And I'll tell you why. Kuwait in the 70s and 80s was the most yeah, progressive country in the GCC, the, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council, which is the Arabian Gulf. Uh, Kuwait was. However, things have changed politically and culturally. Uh, After the uh, 1990-91 war, well, invasion of Iraq, things changed after that. And uh, uh, Kuwait became much more uh, withdrawn. People Mm. became withdrawn. The country became more uh, nationalized, more religious, more extremist. um, And the more religious parties took over, more tribal parties took over, and so now, 2023, where we find ourselves um, is that we have been bypassed by Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Bahrain, etc. specifically the, the Emirates and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was the least progressive, where the hijab was um, uh, compulsory. And now, I went to Saudi Arabia last summer. I was invited there to be a judge on a talent show. I was wearing a regular suit. Uh, My hair was like this uncovered. I was treated with respect. I was treated with admiration. I was treated with awe at being an artist. They have such respect and awe for the the arts. It's incredible. I didn't expect any of that. And it really is amazing to see how Saudi Arabia has progressed in that sense. Uh, And you may have, if you Google it, you'll see they've got concerts, DJs parties, festivals, uh, the area of Al-Ula has become an immensely like one of the, now it's like the seventh wonder of the world. It's incredible what the government has done with its artists to upgrade Al-Ula, to to create a, a mesmerizing, magical place full of art installations that are used by the public as part of the environment and nature. In Kuwait, unfortunately, we don't have this going on. The government does not support us. The government shuts us down, case and you know, example. Uh, the government does not want us to speak up, does not want us to um, express ourselves, even in journalism. And so unfortunately, we are really we've been stagnating for years and years now in Kuwait, and so artists have to really do their own thing and can only find international recognition on their own by struggling and digging through the tunnel tunnels to escape this prison. And it's all really sad to see how, because we have so many talented people and especially the fact that the women of Kuwait, Kuwaiti women are the most progressive women in the Gulf. They're the best educated, most fashion conscious, most, most, you know, talented it it's such a shame to see this happen because what ends up happening is all the all the talented people just end up leaving.
0: Um Exactly. And, so yeah, you know, what what made you stay?
1: My kids. I'm a single mom. I have four children and um unfortunately as a divorced woman in Kuwait I have very little rights and if I leave I lose my children. It's as simple as that and I would never my children come first before anything else. So I would never I would stay In a prison for my children, if I had to, so I would never leave. Um, And that's just my that's my story. I'm 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 stuck in Kuwait because I have I'm a single mom, and that's what I do to sacrifice as a single mom. Uh, I could have gotten so many better opportunities abroad. I would have been an international, you know. I could be in the Guggenheim now. I could be in the Whitney Museum now. But unfortunately, very few people know I exist because I'm stuck in Kuwait and I have to be here for my kids. Um, And I just think that's my journey. And one day I will get out of here when my youngest is old enough to be an adult. I will get out and I will get what I deserve. Eventually, it's just going to be a longer journey for me than other artists.
0: Hasn't it changed? Your first exhibition was overthrown by the government or uh, it was raided and your artworks are confiscated. How has things changed? changed i think it's been 10 years since that how have things progressed or what is different or is it still the same
1: um okay it that was in 2012 and then from 2012 until 2020 before covid hit i was exhibiting abroad i was i was not allowed to show in kuwait anymore Mm. and then in january 2020 i had a show in kuwait again it was the first show i have after the first shutdown and I thought, I thought, okay, time has passed. People have forgotten. The country has progressed, surely. The art scene is is elevated, surely. So I had the show at Cap Gallery in January 2020. It was called um, Like Russian Dolls, We Nest in Previous Selves. I really prided myself on the show. It was a show that included um, paintings, installations, Sculptures, uh, poetry, uh, and visuals, theatrical visuals, like um, I had all the balls painted uh, burgundy, maroon color, and I had, I used the lighting, I used so many effects, Unfo- okay. Um, so, unfortunately, what ended up happening is it got shut down again by the government, and uh, they came in, they, they insisted on all the paintings being removed um, and the paintings had to be removed off the wall. The mannequins, the sculptures all had to be removed and then they even wanted to wax seal the gallery doors so that the owner of the gallery would never work again. They would take his license away for hosting. Oh, no. It was that bad. So I think we get the message loud and clear, Shuruq Amin simply cannot exhibit in Kuwait ever again. Um, Again, I was under investigation. I was lucky to be actually saved by COVID. COVID was good for me because COVID hit a month later. Well, it was already hitting, but the airport shut down in Kuwait a month later in February. The investigation was removed, eliminated. I was free uh, free, free from all of this and all the attention of the country went to COVID like the rest of the planet. And so that's when I was sitting at home and I was thinking, what am I going to do? I can't show my work here anymore. I'm under scrutiny. Obviously, they're watching me, um, you know, and um, most likely my phone is tapped, etc. Like, what do I do? And then I thought, you know what? NFTs. I discovered NFTs. I was like, this is the way to go. This is the way where they catch me if you can. You can't catch me with NFTs, you know and uh so that was
0: the start of my web three journey. you know, looking at the brighter side it's it's not that bad, you know, if it was hundred or some other place or some other country, they could have just um kidnapped you or you could have been erased, like people would have yeah. never known you before i I mean it's not uncommon to imagine these yeah. things happening in that area so
1: yeah absolutely it's Glad absolutely. we are able to
0: talk today and you are you are able to see your work and you're able to freely travel
1: no absolutely you're a hundred percent right and many, many people have said that you it's a miracle you have not even been thrown in jail and i honestly honest to god i believe i even got goosebumps saying this uh, i believe i have somebody in this country that is very very powerful that's behind the scenes secretly saving me and looking out for me and kind of preventing that from happening. And I think he or she is someone so powerful that they they the, the government knows they can they can only do certain things to me like try to shut me up but without actually killing me or throwing me in jail or actually physically harming me. I think there's a line they can't cross because I'm protected because there's no other explanation for it. There's absolutely no other explanation for it, so I'm I'm 99 sure that there's someone who has my back that I don't know who it is because they would not be able to say that they yeah. support and you. Know, they would not be able that to say too,
0: it's a patriarchal society, and you are you don't I mean you're divorced, so you're even more vulnerable in that in that way, isn't it? So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so would you like to meet that somebody in coming years, or how how absolutely. would your reaction be?
1: Absolutely. Oh my God. If I ever met this person, I would give them the biggest hug. I hope they're a hugger. I would hug them and just be, I, I mean, I'm, I am so grateful to them, whoever they are. Um, I, I can't, I, I can't thank them enough. I have no words for it.
0: Mm-hmm. So as we are just talking about Kuwait, you know, we cover, we are covering all the countries of the world, having a guest from every country of the world and asking them some fun facts about the country and about the culture so can you share some fun facts about kuwait us
1: yeah of course no i mean you know it's not all bad i mean the, the, we do have some amazing things here um definitely the family unit is huge there's a sense of being you know in a village where um you'll will, you'll will never be kind of you know you you always feel like that someone's got your back in a way you know your family's there for you um and we have extended families, so you'll, it's normal to see people living with their wives or husbands, with the mom and dad and the grandpa and the grandma and the kids, and the you know they're all the uncles and the cousins. They're all in one big giant house. You know uh, that's normal here. It's very unusual, very unusual for a man to live alone. Even more unusual, possibly impossible, for a woman to live alone. Uh, like when I was trying to find a place to rent for me and my kids let me tell you, it was a nightmare nightmare, no one would rent to me as a single divorced woman, no one, it was I, I, I the search was tough um, until I finally found someone who knew who I was uh, and was a, <laughs> a bit of a fan <laughs> and said yes, come live in my building, you know um, so yeah but there's, you know I actually like the weather. It's super hot here, but in the winter, it's gorgeous. Like, imagine you have, let's say from November, December, January, February, and March. You have five months of beautiful, perfect weather. Perfect. It's not too cold. It's cool with the sun out. Amazing weather. Summer, yeah, no, you don't want to be here. That's why Kuwaitis, a fun fact about Kuwaitis, most Kuwaitis, most, if not all, travel in the summer. Everybody travels in the summer. The country is empty. In like June, July, August, especially in August, the country is empty. Nobody can handle, not even Kuwaitis can handle the the kind of heat we get. We get heat over 50 degrees centigrade. You know, you have to, like, half, that's oh my half, God. half the boiling point of, of boiling of water, okay? <laughs> you could literally cook an egg on the car at that point. Um... So that's that's a that's something we everyone travels. Um,
0: you know, about yeah, the weather? it's just
1: it's a very it's a very uh, close community. We're we're big foodies, by the way, huge foodies. Kuwaitis are so talented with food and creative with food. We have a lot of local restaurants, a lot of local brands that became international. Something called like the Chocolate Bar, uh, Talabat, which is like the delivery app. These are all local Kuwaiti kids, youth that had creative ideas. We have, from gar- garages to workshops, to fashion, to food, to anything you can imagine, Kuwaitis have done it. They are amazing businessmen and businesswomen, entrepreneurs, so talented with money. Um, and yeah, the only thing I would say is, um, you know, we just, we don't have the freedom that we deserve. And uh, also, environmentally, the country is still not aware Uh, The people need to be educated regarding environment, Um, you know, things like saving water and being efficient and sustainable. Young people are woke. They are starting this movement. So I really have hope for the next generations. I feel like once the older generation kind of dies out. Then you know, The newer generations, the woke generations, my kids' generations. I mean, my kids are amazing and their friends are amazing. They could so fit in anywhere change. in the world. If you, you know, any Westerner would feel right at home with any kind of Kuwaiti youth. We're very cultured um, because we're well-traveled. So mm. they would feel right at home. They would be best buddies, you know. So I feel this younger generation, my kids' generation, when they take over, we'll be fine. Kuwait will be fine. It's just a matter of time. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, all the difficulties and challenges you had faced will probably end with your generation and yes. won't yeah. come back again. Yeah, talking about Kuwait and as it is in Middle East, uh, we cannot ask. We cannot. I mean, go ahead without talking about petroleum. So, is it like you dig a hole anywhere in Kuwait and if you go deep <laughs> enough, you'll find oil?
1: No, not at all. You know, when I was a kid, I used to go to Spain for a holiday and I remember these kids uh would say, you know, I'd say I'm from Kuwait and they would be like, "Oh my god. Are you like a rich Kuwaiti?" and I'm like, "Yeah, I have a double-decker tent." In you know, I live in a double-decker tent with an oil well and a camel in my backyard, you know? Oh my god. No, no. <laughs> However, oil is very cheap here. Yes, it is. Petrol is super cheap like we I would fill my car, and now it's, now it's more expensive than it was a few years ago, but now at its most expensive, I'd fill my car for 5KD, which is 10 UK, 10 uh, pounds, British pounds. Mm-hmm. I'd fill my car for 10 British pounds. Whereas if anywhere else in the world,
0: you're. For 10 it, British pounds, you would just get one liter OER. <laughs> yeah. You probably get uh, 40 or 50 to fill up your uh, yeah, car. A minimum
1: 50. Yeah, minimum 50, yeah.
0: One Another fun fact, I don't know if it's from Oman or from Kuwait, but people are really afraid of the monsoon because the water doesn't seep in the ground and it just flushes away. So there the are a lot of floods during the monsoon. Does that happen in Kuwait?
1: Okay, we don't actually have monsoons. We have regular rainfall but sometimes the rain doesn't stop for a whole day. And if it rains hard, the country is not equipped to handle uh, rain. It's a country equipped to handle heat and dust and sand. Uh, So if we have a sandstorm, our houses are well sealed. We don't get the sand inside the house. It's like double glazed, triple glazed windows, that sort of thing. But if it rains, the sewage system is not equipped to handle the rain. And so the water floods out to the roads and you'll find floating cars mm. and it's a disaster. It's a serious issue. Um, and they're trying to work on it now, I guess, because in the last few years we had a, a few really bad floods and some people died in the floods. And all from a little bit of rain. It's not You cannot call it a monsoon, trust me. It's literally like one day of rain nonstop. <laughs> one, one day of rain whole, nonstop. That's the it. The
0: monsoon comes in a day. <laughs>
1: The, yeah, it's a one day of rain nonstop, and it floods the entire country. That's how badly the country is ill-equipped for rain, and so that is a that is an infrastructure problem that needs to be solved by the government. And I do know they are trying to work on it based on the problems we've had. Yeah,
0: in your paintings, you have shown fashion of Kuwait, right? So in these different middle eastern countries or uh, gulf countries does each country have a different way of wearing that uh, those clothes those hij- i don't know what to call yes. them what do you call the male dress and the female dress
1: for the male dress it's called a dish dasha. So the dishdasha so the the long robe is it called dishdasha and mm. then the covering for the head is called qitra and then the band around it to hold it in place is called agal. So that's for the men, and it is different from country to country in the GCC. So in Kuwait, you'll find usually the collar and the sleeves. In Kuwait, the collar is just a straight-up collar, you know, just a cuff. In, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia, it's more like a suit collar or a shirt collar, like Mm. a lapel. Mm. Uh, In another country, it's more like an like Oman. It's just open with no collar. It's just crew neck. So from the collar and the sleeves, sometimes the sleeves have um, buttons and sometimes they're loose. Like in Kuwait, they are loose. In Saudi Arabia, they have buttons. These details tell you which country you're from. So we know oh. from the clothes where each person is from. With the women, it's the same with the with the dara'a or the abaya, the type of abaya, the t- how they wear their hijab even. Like in uh, Kuwait, they wear the hijab to cover a little bit of the forehead and then it It kind of goes under the chin and sometimes it's trendy to put like a big bun under it. So it's heightened here. It's like a fashion statement in, in places like Syria, where my mom is from, for example, it's a much more rigid hijab. It's much more like just kind of really, just kind of like a circular thing covering the head. Uh, In different Arab countries, the hijab is very different. Uh, Now, however, with fashion for women, The turban took on a life of its own as a hijab. And a lot of hijabi women just use a turban. But the true religious people don't accept it because your neck is showing. And Mm. the whole point is you're not supposed to show your neck. So if you've got a turban on and you've got your neck covered, you're good, you know? But if your neck is uncovered, they don't accept that as a proper hijab. It's more like a fashion hijab, (sighs) you know?
0: You know, in countries, suppose in India or anywhere in the world, Especially women are always looking out and commenting on each other's dress at weddings or any occasion like that and they're always in competition for a different style or that's a that's something to talk about. But when you're in Middle Eastern countries or suppose for Kuwait where everybody's wearing a monocolor, like completely black or completely white, or is does that thing even happen? Like how what are the gossips about?
1: <laughs> yeah. No, first of all, for the abaya, there's a lot of different styles for it now. It remains black, but it's styled in many different ways. Kind of visualize a black dress, how many ways you can style a black dress. It's infinite, right? It's the same with the abaya. And it will have like gold trim or some kind of embroidery and that sort of thing. And they play with the shape of it and the collar and the sleeves and that sort of thing. So they do play around with that. Um, But fashion is is definitely very big here. And... um, yeah, so what was I going to say? I had a I had a really fun point I was going to say. I don't know, talk to me it'll come back to me.
0: Women women talking about each other in social events. Yes,
1: yeah, so uh, regarding with like you said something about India. Uh, now I remember. So, you know, because of the history of Kuwait with trading with India and the ships going back and forth. It used to be in my father's generation that a lot of Kuwaiti men married Indian women and brought them back to Kuwait. So a lot of the older, very uh, prestigious families in Kuwait, the matriarch is actually an Indian woman. And so they speak fluent Indian. And yeah, and it passes down to the generation. So we're very close. A lot of our food is Indian, similar to Indian food, a lot of the same spices, and so we have a very close affinity with India. A lot of Kuwaitis speak Indian, by the way. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's an interesting fun fact as well.
0: Hindi. Hey, Indian, India has many languages. I think you're talking about Hindi. Hindi, yes. Okay. Yeah. It's very interesting. So the, the husband has come from India to Kuwait and lived in Kuwait in a material no, no. family. The
1: Kuwaiti men. The huh. Kuwaiti men, they used to be pearl divers and traders. The traders uh-huh. would go to India and trade, and they would get lonely, and they would get marry
0: Indian women
1: and come back to Kuwait with the Indian women. And these Indian women became the matriarchs of some of the biggest families in Kuwait.
0: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so this gives rise to a couple of more questions. About a generation above you, or two, three generations ago, how were things... Probably the oil wasn't discovered then. So what stories yes. do you get to hear from your parents or grandparents yeah. about time being different and so on?
1: Well, like, yeah, I hear stories from, from my mom in the past when they were growing up before oil was discovered. Um, it was very simple lifestyle. They lived in mud houses that kept the heat out uh, like many other hot places around the world. And the everybody lived in one house. Uh, all the families lived in one house and um, their entertainment was really just kind of very much like the West, just, you know, uh, games they played together. Like the kids would play these uh, cultural games together that now become cultural for us. They're like historic. But at the time, these games, um, you know, the women would just sit around and and weave and talk and have tea and, um, you know, keep everything uh, beautiful in the house. Uh, For sure, they were homemakers. Uh, And the men would either be pearl divers, which was a very dangerous uh, trade, uh, because essentially it's free diving. You know, free diving, no oxygen, but they have to find pearls to sell and make money. That's how they made their money. Or they were traders and they would trade and they would go on ships and they would be gone for months and months and months. And so the women had to take care of the hearth and take care of the family and take care of everything. But it was a very safe, peaceful country where everybody knew everybody. And my father used to tell me uh, that he would have people come into his shop to buy things and they would have no money. And he would just give them the things on their word that they would come back and pay at some point. So I don't know if that makes him a bad businessman or it's just that was how the country was safe. (laughs) But that's how things were. People would actually create big, big um, uh, deals just by shaking hands. Like, that's the thing. Like, really, they just shook hands and the deal was made and you could not go back on your word ever. Uh, People slept with their doors wide open. Uh, There was no such thing as a lock. So it was just a very,
0: very peaceful, wow. simple yeah, time. Pearl diving seems to be the main business there because I don't think the desert land is quite good for some exotic farming or something. Um, so pearl diving and things like that. And that leads me to the next question. You have got certificates in diving and in yachting, which people don't know about. Can you tell us more <laughs> about that?
1: I mean, I love I love the sea, like all Kuwaitis, we, we live by the sea, so it's part of our growing up. And um, I also am the kind of person that I'm always moving forward and I always want to challenge myself and learn new things. And when I feel I've been in one place for too long, I really get bored with myself and I just want to challenge myself. So I thought, okay, diving. I got my Padi, my Nawi. I, I really got into it in the seashells, actually. I was in the seashells and I tried to dive there. And once I was under the water and I realized that my ears completely shut and my eyes became wide open and I could see the, the, the universe underwater, the colors, those fish, the coral, the beauty of a universe that we have no access to unless we physically go into it was fascinating to me. And I even got myself a notepad, a waterproof notepad and waterproof pen. And under the sea, I would actually sketch and make notes of things I saw because it was absolutely incredible. Um, And that was before before I realized I can take a camera down there and take photos, but I wanted the experience of sketching underwater. And uh, so I decided to go all the way because when I try an activity and I fall in love with it, I want to take it as far as I can take it. So I got my Padi license. I got my Nawi license. I did deep diving, which was scary um, because you lose, you lose, you're, you're kind of like on drugs when you're deep diving. You don't know, you can't, you don't know who you are. You're very kind of like trippy. So the, to test that you can remain focused that deep, they give you a padlock and you're supposed to unlock the padlock and by unlocking the padlock, then you can go up and you pass the test. And I I did. I did that. And it was very challenging because you're very woozy. You don't know if you're upside down. You don't know if the sea is below, like the, the sky is below you or above you. You just lose it. Uh, it's crazy what happens to this chemistry in, in the body. Uh, I did night diving, which was incredible because of the phytoplankton in the sea. So wow. at night when you're diving in in the at night and it's super dark you can't even see your hand in front of your face it's so scary but then all you got to do is kind of wave your hand around and suddenly you're swimming in sparkles it's like being you know tinkerbell it's amazing I absolutely love night diving so I really fell in love with diving in that way and then I said you know what uh, then I reached almost my master certificate and I was going to get my master certificate and I said, no, it's enough. I know how to dive. I know how to enjoy it. No need to go all that way. I'm not going to be teaching diving. So why? And then my next step was to um, learn how to drive a boat and be a skipper. I wanted to be able what to is actually a, skipper? a yacht.
0: Hmm? What, what is a skipper?
1: A skipper is a, is a, a boat captain.
0: Okay. It's just
1: the It's the boating word for the boat captain of small boats. Okay. So it's it's captain if you're in a boat over 30 feet. If it's a boat under 30 feet you're a skipper, okay? So I got my skipper license, which is the boat under 30 feet. I was the only girl with six boys in the class. We had theory and practical uh and when we of course all the boys failed their theory uh and then as as boys would. <laughs> and then the practical they tested us on a boat with two engines. So you can, because it's easy to drive a boat with one engine, but they did, they challenged us with things like parking in small spaces between two other big boats without touching the boats, Um, you know, getting out of a small space, Uh, navigation, learning the navigation, learning the the astronomy, navigating without a navigator by night, using the stars, weird shit like that. And then you have things like um, knowing where all the buoys are in the ocean which ones you're allowed to pass from the right or the left uh because even in the sea you have by the way a right way to one way yes and one way no but people don't realize that and people who just take a boat and go out they just all over the place and they make a mess for the people who do know you know and it's dangerous um so it was fascinating and I so I I passed my my uh, all my exams and Uh, I got my license, and so now I can go anywhere in the world and rent a boat and drive it on my own. Uh, Absolutely wonderful. And uh, then I uh, moved on to the over 30 feet boats, which is called a yacht at that point. That's much more complicated. I actually didn't finish my degree because COVID uh, hit at that point, and so I didn't finish my yachting. uh, So I still have to finish my yachting degree and then move on to the sailing. Sailing is much harder because you're dealing with... Physical Wind. work with the, yeah, the sailing is the hardest one. Um But they don't do sailing in Kuwait. So I would actually have to, if I'm doing the sailing degree, I would actually have to go to South Africa or something like that
0: to get it. You know, uh there's two words from the boating vocabulary you have stayed with me. port side and starboard side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we know all that from the movies, right? Uh, I I knew it from my tour to uh, Lakshadweep, yeah, the islands near uh, in, in India. Okay. Amazing! That's where I got my first experience of scuba diving and snorkeling. So I can actually visualize what you're seeing, but yeah. I can't really believe uh, night diving and seeing all those um, planktons, Psychic as you said. Yeah. yeah, that would be amazing. So wh- how what what developed your interest in uh, this yachting and diving even like you said till covid that's like very recent i thought it was just in your uh, teen teenage years or something no no.
1: (laughs) no no this is very recent yeah very recent in the last couple of years last few years yeah um again it's just um something i've always wanted to do sometimes i just sit and think god you know i would really love to do this and i'm like well why not do it what's stopping you just go and do it you know um, and it's just one of those things. I love the sea. I absolutely love the sea. I love summer. I love the beach and I love anything to do with the sea. And I feel like if if I'm going to go out in the sea, I need to really respect it and really understand what I'm dealing with rather than just go out there like an idiot. Like in my past when I was younger, I would go on boats with people. We'd go to the islands, but we're just driving like idiots. We have no idea if we've hurt any coral beneath us or if we have gone the right way or If we've, you know, we just, if something happens, we wouldn't know how to deal with it. Sometimes we'd go off on a boat without even having this, the safety or first Mm. aid stuff or even enough life jackets on board for everyone. Like it's reckless and careless. And I wanted to be better than that. I wanted to be knowledgeable and aware and respectful of the sea. And so that's why I, I did it. And it's the same with, um, Pilates, um, Pilates is
0: uh, exercise, right? Kind of an exercise.
1: It's it's a type of exercise, yes. Uh, You know, I've had four kids, so with every pregnancy, you your body changes. And after I had my last, my youngest, Khalid, my body just would not go back to normal, and it was tough for kids. And so I tried everything, and I've always been an active, active person. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to try this Pilates. Um, I tried everything except Pilates. I tried yoga. I tried, you know, calisthenics, weight training, everything. Um, And I said, let me try Pilates. And lo and behold, within three months, my body just went back to normal. Everything just kind of shrunk and fit as it's supposed to. It was amazing. And I said, okay, I want to know why this happened. What is so special about Pilates? And I want to do it right. Because Following YouTube and following just videos, I was pretty sure I was not doing it the way it really should be done. So I went to Dubai and I would literally every weekend, like three days, go to Dubai to this school, Academy of Pilates, study and come back to my kids five days of the week. So I'm in Kuwait five days, I'm in Dubai two, three days, and I'd go and come and I did that for two years. I got seven degrees in Pilates. I got my, oh my anatomy, God. anatomy degree, which is a course that is entirely only anatomy, how every ligament is attached, how every muscle, where each movement fires from, how to know the the movement is correct, from which muscle is firing, from where, every single thing. And that was an amazing, intense, um, uh, 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 course that really, really, um, educated me in life in general even in general movement now i know when someone tells me their back hurts or their stomach hurts or their shoulder i know why it's hurting i can actually figure it out and then i did uh the main mat pilates which is the joseph pilates 30 exercises that he did and he coordinated uh in the 40s and then the Wunda chair the reformer the um uh barrel you know for every equipment there's a course separate you can't just be like oh i'm a pilates instructor and i can teach you everything no anyone who is who does that it's it, it, they're scamming you you have to find an instructor that's certified in that equipment in pilates every equipment has its own certification so i got all of the certifications over two years all and i became an instructor and i was like you know what People started no. hearing about it. They're like, Should we actually, a Pilates instructor now, can we do a class with you? And I'm like, sure, come over, I'll, 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 I'll teach you. And I started just teaching people for fun and and this and that. And then I stopped because that wasn't my vibe. Like, that's not why I did it. I did it so I can educate myself and be better and be the best at it for myself uh, and understand what it's doing to my body. Um, so yeah. And you
0: went to that extent to take seven certificates in that, just for yourself. People usually yeah. go with the hassles of taking certificates and all that. If they want to become a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> no. yeah. that's very interesting that you keep on and on learning. Yeah. Um in 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 that same way, you have also taken a PhD in a in a topic that I cannot pronounce, ek, ek parsis. <laughs> Uh, what is it about and how did you think about (laughs) doing a PhD in it?
1: Good question. So yeah, ekphrasis is the relationship between art and poetry. It's, it's in it, you know, putting it very, very simply. And the reason I got into that field is because I, I, when I graduated, uh, from the English school in Kuwait, I was 16 years old and I wanted to study art. Because that's all I've been doing my whole teenage years and childhood was just draw, draw, draw. And my mom, who was very, very strict, uh, raised by a military father, was like, no way. You are 16. You are not leaving Kuwait at 16 and living alone abroad. So my mom forbade me from studying abroad at the age of 16. And she said, you have to go to Kuwait University and do your BA in Kuwait University. And when you are over 18, you can travel. So I got into Kuwait University English Literature, which was my second love, poetry. I just, I worked my, like just work, 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 work. Within three years, I graduated with honors and I got a scholarship. And I went to my mom and I said, listen, I have a scholarship uh, to go study abroad. So I'm leaving. I want to get out of here and I'm leaving. Unfortunately, it wasn't a scholarship to study art because art was not even, you know, it, it was not even looked at as a, a topic. Art was just a hobby in Kuwait at the time. So there was no art in colleges, there was no art anywhere. Uh, so I had to study literature. I had to focus on literature, which I didn't want to do because I'm not really an academic type of person. But I did it anyway to get out of Kuwait and just just get out of Kuwait, really. So I did that. I went abroad. I went to the UK, University of Kent and Canterbury, and uh, I did my um, master's uh, in literature and poetry, and then, while I was there, I discovered that there is a field that would be acceptable as part of literature called ekphrasis, which focuses on art with poetry, and it. It, it uh, analyzes and explores the relationship between the two, as per the famous masters and poets of, of history. So, for example, William Blake, he was an ekphrastic artist and an ekphrastic poet because William Blake had his whole Innocence and songs of innocence and songs of experience. He had the his paintings and sketches and his poetry as well. That's called ekphrasis. Uh, Keats. The same thing, Ode to an Urn, a famous poem. It's all about the urn, but that's also art, it's a sculpture. So it was an ekphrastic poem, Ode to an Urn, about a real-life piece of art. And so there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples of this that I discovered while I was in, in England. And I thought, yes, I found a loophole. I can actually study art and art history (laughs) <laughs> Without the government of quite realizing it's art and they'll pay my scholarship and I can come back with this thing called ekphrasis, which is part of literature, but I've studied art and that was my loophole and that's why I did it. So I ended up wow. getting a PhD in ekphrasis.
0: <laughs> Let's go. So PhD is usually a thesis, right? You have to take, pick a topic and write a very detailed yeah. study about it. So what topic did you pick in that?
1: Um, well... I did my PhD in two parts, actually, because it was very long. I did an 800-page PhD. So it was 400 pages uh, that focused on the poetics of ekphrasis, analysis of uh, poems and, and art. And then the second half was where I really excelled and where the the panel really asked me most of my questions. Uh, and it was basically, I was arguing against Leonardo da Vinci
0: and I was trying
1: to yeah I was in my PhD I disproved Leonardo's theory that a picture is worth a thousand words I disproved it and I proved my entire thesis was proving how Leonardo was wrong and that actually the word is more powerful than the image And when you hear it, you say, no way, Jose, that's not true. There's no way that's true. But I have a PhD to prove that it's true. So you'd have have to read it. (laughs) But I did. I proved it. And they were the Viva Voce. When I had the Viva Voce and the panel, you know, they put you, they sit you there and they ask you all these questions uh, to try to see if you really know what you're talking about. And they were convinced. I convinced them. I had one after the other after the other after, i had all these points each point i analyzed and proved in you know hundreds of pages so
0: can you yeah. can you t- share two points to convince the audience because sure. <laughs> they're not going to go and read the whole phd <laughs>
1: no i don't expect them to <laughs> okay so here's the first point right the first point is when you look at a painting let's say let's say klimt's kiss which we talked about earlier right you're usually looking at it on uh, in a book or on a monitor, right? You haven't actually gone to Austria and looked at it there, right? So you're looking at it kind of with a, there's a barrier between you and that painting. Uh, when you look at that painting, you're not really getting the full effect of what the artist intended just by looking at a screen or a, or a picture in a book. Um, and so you lose, the power of the painting. Now, when you go to the museum and you stand in front of the painting, you are in awe. You are taken to another world. You're you're you get goosebumps. You're like jaw drop. You're like whoa. You know, it's a different experience. But that's its weakness: is you have to be there physically, in front of that painting physically. So. With the word, with poetry, it's always written on a, on a paper or on a screen, right? That is, that is how it exists. So when you are reading the words, in order to make the words come alive, you have to use your imagination and associations to make them come alive. So you are already part of it. You are already part of the images you are creating in your head. And you are creating images that the art, the, the poet probably never intended, that are yours and yours alone. It's such an intimate relationship between you and these words. And it comes to life in your imagination, in your head, in your soul. And you will remember those images. Like when you see people reading a book on the beach and then later you ask them like, oh my God, in this chapter, this happened. Oh my God. I was like, no, you really get into it. Like really, really get into it. So you become part of the words and part of the story. You see, this is the strength of the word.
0: I would still argue that nobody might have put this argument. There's still many people, suppose the dyslexic like me, who don't get the complete uh gist or that experience just by reading it because then you have to know the words and even if you read in the dictionary it's not the same it breaks the flow and so what do you have to say for that then then the painting is much more uh visually understandable or <laughs> like i i like to watch movies i never i never read books which have movies <laughs>
1: yeah well here's the thing the other the other the other point is like with, with, a, with a painting, you're really interpreting it the way you kind of want to interpret it. It's, a, it's an image. It's a visual. So it really depends on what you're seeing. But with the words, the poet is really kind of really being specific, right? Very specific with his or her words. And so it's, you may look at it the other way around, which is actually there's more help there and you're being helped to see the image and being helped to feel something that maybe when you look at a an abstract painting, you glance at it and it's like, because eh. I've done, by the way, uh, analysis of abstract painting, like Jackson Pollock painting. If you look at it, does it really move you? Does it really move you? I don't know, okay? I know that Jackson Pollock doesn't move me, okay? I admire him me. as an artist. <laughs> But seeing one of his paintings does nothing for me. That's the truth, okay? But if I read a, pa- a poem, or a paragraph, not even a poem, many people don't understand poetry, a paragraph, an explanation of the painting, that is a <laughs> An explanation so, of the painting, right? If I read to you an explanation of Jackson Pollock's painting, wouldn't you look at it differently? Wouldn't it give you more power?
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, you like to see the wall description when you walk into the um, uh, gallery <laughs> and then seeing the painting itself. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, I like to see the painting and I like to interpret things <laughs> my way. But then I always, always read the description because I am very interested because I'm an artist. So I'm mm. very interested in what the artist has to say. Mm. So even though, yes, I have my own opinion of the painting and my own associations with it, and it might might give me, I see it in a way that the artist never intended, probably. I'm still Mm. very interested to see how the artist intended it because out of respect for the artist and how they saw the world and what Mm. that painting meant to them. Because when someone walks into one of my exhibitions and sees the painting, they will understand it the way they understand it with their own history and associations and imagination. But I would still want them To take that little bit of effort, read what the title is at least, because then you'd understand what I wanted you to understand from that painting. And Mm -hmm. that's not to say that's wrong or right. Neither is wrong or right. There's no right or wrong here, you
0: know. You know, I I agree and disagree with you on certain points. Disagree for the abstract, because as you said about interpretation, you uh, you cannot. You said you cannot interpret what they're saying, but you can have your own interpretation for that right it's open to imagination and i agree with you on that point of course i get inspired by jackson pollock's painting i've talked about it i'm um, i really like that but it got better even better when i read his story that he says that the painting is a byproduct of the performance which he was doing so he it is it is a byproduct of his dance or his performance playing with the colors and so yeah, yeah that but you more to read interesting. That. Seeing the seeing the yeah, seeing the accent. You had to read that, you see. That. Yeah. And I that's it's also an irony because you talk about words have being more powerful, but you're still making images. You're an yes. artist. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. Maybe True. it's part of me being a Libra. I can see both sides. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so what can you share with us a poem you're a poet so
1: oh gosh i'd have to read i have to open i have to read uh i have to open my lap my 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 computer and read something do you want me to do that absolutely okay give me a second then (laughs) let me do that
0: so till she is finding it guys make sure to like and subscribe and share this with your friends Check out all the links of Shurok in the description. Go to a virtual gallery. Uh, you'll have an amazing experience. <laughs> and we open for sponsorship. So see the links for sponsorship below. We should make a poem for sponsorship next.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to read one called taboo it's just it's opening up i have a very old mac it's still hanging on by its last legs (laughs) but it's such an amazing computer honestly they don't make them like this anymore okay
0: here we go (laughs) who says that that's a very unique say saying like in context of computers, they don't make like this anymore.
1: I swear, I'm telling you, because I've, Ma- I've seen the new Macs. I've seen the new Macs. This is, this <laughs> is going to be, I, I'll, I'll save it and sell it as vintage in the future for a lot of money. I'm, I'm not getting rid of this one. Okay, so this, is, this poem is called Taboo, and it's uh, about, uh, okay, I'm not going to say what it's about, because as we said, hmm. everybody has to interpret yeah, on their definitely.
0: own.
1: <laughs> Your arms bare and skin decanted onto the world in fluid hues, with white and lacing blue, caressing red, harvesting black. Black morphs into two figures, soaked in dark strokes, intractable, sucking souls for religion. White unfurls reason. Black displays displeasure at your odalisque contours, those breasts swaying like heavy globed fruits, on a heaving branch so contrapuntal to religion yet eve's replica rests with unease on a red day's mouth flickering with the unsettling vibe of disapproval inaudible yet loud drifting from those black forms who think themselves unerring parsimonious with themselves, not even offering crumbs of understanding as they watch Your bountiful thighs immerse in sandalwood-scented red pigment. With strokes of warm sienna, they are striking in their diminutiveness. These black forms, their rich petroleum-fed blackness, leaps like the silhouette of Kuwait's oil-well-burning flames. And you, with your tulip face, nasturtium-breath, cinnamon-infused chest, your womb-ripe warmth and spicy-red mouth, you glow bloody. The blood of menses, the blood of slit-skin, the blood of birth, the blood of death, the blood of Earth's epicentre, hot-core bloody red. Like a tomato, seething, bulging, bursting into round-tipped red bits, so your blood bursts forth from you, warm and lumpy and bare, like pulp, nascent spice-stippled your scent, abraded by black infestations, hidden in foul orange, watching you from afar, unable to touch you, own you, kiss you, love you. So they choose instead to rape you. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) The end.
0: <laughs> that that was moving. Like that was a big punch at the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow.
1: So yeah, obviously my poems are banned here as well. <laughs> Can't. Have you
0: had, do you have an Arabic version of this?
1: No, I don't. I do. I actually I'm an Anglophone, uh so I write in English. um mm-hmm. I don't think anyone has translated my poems into Arabic, to be honest with you.
0: Mm. I was just thinking of the Kiss painting itself. I mean, your Red um, King of Heart painting that we talked about. And also mm. I got images of your other women paintings that you have done uh, when I was reading this. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Very, yeah. very uh, suitable for the theme of this, of our conversation today.
1: I mean, it wasn't planned. Uh, I had, you, you, you know, you never told me you want me to read a poem. It was I literally just opened yeah. up my desktop and that was the first poem that popped up in my uh, folder. So it's meant to be. Synchronicity, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Synchronicity. Yeah. Wow. Do you write poems as description for your artworks?
1: No, I don't. Because then it's, I've done it only when I was doing my PhD because then that's called ekphrastic poetry mm-hmm. and i've done it in that sense for my my paintings and other artists paintings and i've named who the artists are um so i've done for like georgia O'Keefe and 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 things like that but uh in general no in general like mm-hmm. that's not how i write my poetry um i haven't written fresh poetry new poetry in 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 a few years actually it's always just painting 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 um i haven't found myself able to sit still long enough to really have the headspace for for writing unfortunately it's been so hectic my life in the last few years that it's just been you know painting is more conducive because I'm moving physical painting I'm mm. moving my body's moving i'm it, it's more suitable for me and uh you know with the nfts if I'm doing digital paintings it's on my ipad uh, I take it with me when I'm traveling i i'm on my iPad with my pen everywhere I go it's more feasible uh more practical
0: probably but, you need to do probably you need to do 2 or 3 hours of pilates and then sit for a 15 minutes of poem <laughs> brainstorming <laughs> or i need
1: to be 3 hours on a boat by myself <laughs> in the middle of the ocean looking at the stars or the sunset and yeah then I can Absolute. be
0: like, okay, I have to write this down. It'll come. Be like, yes. Uh, talking about the boat and the scuba diving again. Do you have any images or paintings? You said you had taken notes of how things appear. If you have some photos, do share with me. I will. I'll upload it when you're talking about as you're talking about it. Um,
1: I mean, what comes to mind would be. Uh, Uh, Natural Born Sensors, the painting Natural Born Sensors, you should find it on my website. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's a painting where there's three censors, men, Arab men, they're censoring the girl. They've got her in like a Barbie doll house and Mm -hmm. they're literally physically painting her arms black and marking her and censoring her existence. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And she's kind of, they're kind of floating above this oceanic background and in the ocean, there's like these coral and plants and, and all sorts of uh, like beautiful sea, sea life
0: mm-hmm. and that
1: kind of, it gives hope, but hope in a way that is unusual because it's coming from another universe. So mm-hmm. I'm sort of saying that the hope for this girl that's being imprisoned in the Barbie doll house. It's not going to come from her actual exterior. It's actually going to come from within a different universe. Mm. And ironically, I found that in the metaverse in 2021. So that's ironic that it happened that way. But it kind of came true, that painting, for me, in that sense.
0: Wow. (laughs) I want to talk to you about what inspires you. Like, What is the process when you start to create a painting? Is there a thought that you wake up with and you visualize everything before you paint or does it come when you take the brush or paint? It I the always
1: hand? see that. Yeah. First of all, what, what, what triggers the image is some sort of injustice or some sort of hypocrisy or some sort of thing that's happening around me in my environment that I find absolutely um, unacceptable and it really moves me and I want to do something about it. So Whatever it is, really makes me kind of infuriates me, gets my anger juices flowing, gets my fire inside me. Like you know, like I want. What am I gonna do about this? And so that kind of feeling transfers instantly onto canvas. Um, but the middle step between the trigger of the image and the physical canvas is usually. Um, a visual in my head. I always see the image completed in my head completely. And then I work kind of from Z to A, I work kind of backwards. So I don't sketch, I don't make, you know, sometimes I have very few sketches. Like I have a notebook with sketches and stuff, um, but that's only because let's say I'm sleeping and I get the visual in my head while I'm sleeping and I know from experience, if i don't wake up as hard as it is to wake up when you're sleeping if i don't jot it down by the time morning comes it's gone i know so because of my experience with that i no matter how tired i am i will get up i will i always have a notepad next to my bed i'll make a quick sketch of what i saw in my head in my dreams and i'll go back to sleep so the next morning when i wake up and i see sometimes i don't even i don't even remember i'm like whoa i'm glad i sketch that because right? i don't yeah. even remember this dream you know it's crazy you know so i always have the visual in my head and uh i i then just i just have to make it happen on canvas and sometimes that's hard and sometimes it's not because you know what it's supposed to look like and sometimes it shows up identical to my what it is in my head like the king of hearts it showed up identical to what it was in my head And sometimes it kind of evolves and changes a little bit while I'm working on it. And I I have a few paintings like that as well. Like um, uh, there's one where I just got so stuck on it and I couldn't finish it. And then one day I just, you know, just, I don't know what I did to it. I just changed everything. I just added another layer and I don't know what. And suddenly it was like, yes, now it is what it's meant to be. So sometimes the painting does ask to evolve, ask for a different direction, and you gotta flow with that. And sometimes it just is a copy of what I saw in my head. I just literally mm. just do what I saw in my head.
0: Do you do abstracts as well? Like just starting with no thought in the mind and just letting no. the pen pain or paint no. drive itself. <laughs> Would no. you like to try?
1: <laughs> I mean, I just end up scribbling. I don't know. I just end up
0: just a <laughs> lot of scribbles. <laughs>
1: It doesn't work like that for me. I don't know. It's just it's not how it functions. I don't
0: know. Hmm. It's interesting how it works differently from different people. Yeah. Because that's how I usually do it with with no thought in mind. Yeah. It is just the paint and the color and, and that moment which is guiding me to create whatever that comes up in the book. That's why my works are more abstract than yeah. figurative works. Um uh, yeah, so it's, it's a different. Because as you said, that doesn't work for me. So the figurative works don't work for me in that way. It's sort of, it's odd or it's out of the way to go and do that. Very interesting to know. And it looks like we are going in reverse chronology to find out what you created. So my next question would be, how did you begin creating artwork? But just before that, I wanted to comment that the king of artwork, which you are seeing... It's, it's very similar to Klim, uh, Klimt's uh, The case Painting in in terms of where the woman or the position of the head and of the woman and the man and sort of bending down. So was it instinctive or was there direct uh, inspiration from that?
1: It was definitely instinctive, but absolutely, I have no doubt, my instinct and my subconscious was inspired. By the kiss, uh, for sure. I mean, it took, I've I've always been a fan of Klimt, and when I was in Austria, I went to the museum. I saw all his paintings. I stood there in awe of a painting called Medicine, which was gigantic. It was like whoa, like I don't know how many meters high. It was incredible. Uh, I love his work, um, so I'm sure it was inspired by that.
0: Um,
1: but at the end of the day, it's a it's a very independent painting, very. Mm. Um, It really, it has its own, you know, its own uh, personality for sure.
0: With all the stories you told and all the hypocrisy and all the social norms that inspired you to create that and the statement that you're making through the world, it is amazing. And we don't come that often with visual statements to the world. I mean, there are memes. Memes are very common now. Yeah. They're poetry and they're news, uh, but a painting without any words, like yeah. a classical painting making a statement is very unique and very awesome. And I think that's what uh, makes it so amazing to be put on walls, to be put as screensavers and all those things, that, as you mentioned. Amazing. Thank you. How did you start painting or how? what, what is your earliest memory with creating art?
1: My earliest memory, I think I was six, six or seven, I was just, I was always drawing. I was, I found drawing easier than writing and um, I was always drawing, drawing, drawing. And I remember I was in in a place in Kuwait where I could not get comic books and I loved comics. And so I decided to create my own comics as a child and just kind of entertain myself. So I started drawing stories like characters, like little little girls and little boys in little squares with little bubbles of words above them. And I created the stories myself. And then I would just, it's like A4 paper. And then I would just let my um, my aunt or my mom, like it was usually my aunt, she was very into art more. Uh, to kind of punch holes in the side of it and tie a ribbon, one of my hair ribbons, tie it and make like a little booklet. And for me, I'd go around the family and gatherings and show them my little comic book that I created and look at my comic book. And everybody thought I was so talented and is so special. And I guess it was for someone that young uh, to think of making a book, whole book, you know, Um and that's how it started. And so, my father, God rest his soul, he, he loved what he saw and he encouraged it. He would always take me to bookstores and stationery shops and buy all sorts of sketchbooks and colors and draw, drawing utensils and equipment. And just he really supported and he really helped evolve that talent in me throughout the, the, the next few years until the day he passed. And I remember at the age of 13, um, I told my mom that what I wanted for my birthday was an easel. And so for my birthday gift at the age of 13, which was like a special birthday because you're becoming a teenager, you know, um, I got an easel and my first set of oil paints. And so I started at 13 painting in oils. And I started by copying the masters. My dad had a lot of paintings around the house, classic paintings. So I would go to each painting and just copy it. And I would have oil paintings that were copies of what I saw in front of me. And that's kind of how I started. I didn't realize later in life that that is how you're supposed to do it. You are supposed to start by copying the masters. And that's how you 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 you, you uh, grow your... Your talent for composition and light and shade and chiaroscuro and, 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 and everything. I didn't know. I was working instinctively. And it was all very natural. It was all very natural for me. Art came very naturally to me. And I just did what, I, what felt natural to me. And I just kept doing this until um, in my teenage years, I couldn't express myself as a young Kuwaiti girl in Kuwait. I could not speak up. Like my throat chakra was suffocated, okay? So I had to express myself some way and I found that the best way to do it was through drawing. And I would, even even with issues like, you know, when it comes to questions about, uh, you know, intimacy, I would, there's no one to talk to. And there was no internet. So you can't Google anything. And no one would talk to me about anything. So you have to kind of just trial and error it. So Instead of trial and erroring, I would just draw things. i just start drawing, drawing, drawing everything that was in my head. I'd put on paper and uh, it saved me. It saved me from going crazy. It really did. It was my catharsis. Um, and that was kind of how it continued until I came back from the UK and I was painting in the kitchen. I got married right away, very young. Uh, again, I got married simply because it was a semi-arranged marriage, because my mom did not want me to marry the person I was actually in love with, who was not a Kuwaiti. So I had to I had to marry a Kuwaiti. Uh, so she forced me to break up with the person I was in love with, and then she brought all these suitors to the house. And anyway, long story short, I get married. I'm in the kitchen pregnant with my first child and I'm just painting and painting and painting. Cause again, it was the only way I could speak. I was not allowed to speak and I needed to express myself. I was going insane. And it was the only way I could speak was through these paintings. And I did a lot of watercolors, a lot of gouache, a lot of pastels. And that those, those days when I was pregnant, I couldn't use oils cause I was pregnant and even acrylic was a bit iffy. So it was a lot of watercolor, a lot of pastel, that sort of thing. And one day, um, this woman who is kind of related to my family from far away, she heard that I was like manically painting in my kitchen while I was barefoot and pregnant. And she wanted to come see these paintings. So she asked if she could come visit. I said, sure. She came and visited me in my kitchen because it's where I hung out all the time, painting and cooking and whatever. And uh, she saw like hundreds of, you know, like A3 or whatever, little sketches. Um, And she was like, she said, you really should exhibit all of these. This is a lot of work. This is a big body of work. You have to exhibit this. And I was like, okay, sure, exhibit. Go ahead. Why not? Like, I didn't even think about it. And she said, well, I have a little gallery. Can I exhibit them for you? And I said, well, go ahead. Sure, why not? I had zero expectation and I was pregnant. And, uh, so she takes the paintings and she gives me my first solo show. I didn't even realize that's what it was. I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> and lo and behold, I have my first solo show. Huge success. Some paintings were sold before the opening of the doors, even, and sold out, completely sold out. And during that time, during that year where I was first year, married, pregnant, working on all these paintings just to express myself. I also was writing to express myself because I had so much to say and not enough ways to say it. I was going so crazy. My hormones were insane that I just, I also wrote a book of poetry that got published and we sold it. My my ex-husband and I sold it during that first exhibition. So. Published the first book of poetry, first solo show, first child, all in one year. Uh, It was a very fruitful year. (laughs) And that's how I started my journey. And from there, it was a continuation. I just never stopped.
0: Wow. Wow, so interesting. Very, very interesting.
1: It was the way of survival for me. Um, uh, Creating, being a creator was my way of, remaining sane and keeping my mental health in check really
0: so you had just come back from uk yeah uh at that time so you must be 23 24 yeah that's and that <laughs> i can't yeah. imagine like being ha- being have to like being limited to a kitchen and being pregnant and Uh, with all that chaos in the mind, uh, I think whatever happened was for good. I mean, you put all those things out and then like one thing after the other, even the exhibition was pretty bang on to start your career with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just just continued uh, just putting all my pain and my, suffering really for lack of a better word on on, uh, on you know in in art and in in poetry and i just continued and continued and continued uh until i could continue no more and you know four kids later and 17 years of marriage later i just had to get out at that point it was like when i had my fourth and last child it was almost like there was a switch inside me and you know, God finally told me you you 're free to go now it's almost like I swear to you it's almost like my body was the vessel that these four souls had to come in onto earth through me, no one else but me and their father. We were the vessels for these souls, and these souls would not have been able to come through any other vessel, so I something forced me to continue living in pain, continue living in misery, continue living the life I, I lived until I had Khalid, my last one. Because as soon as I had him inside me, inside me, like you, it's like you literally put your hand inside me, Tanmay, and switched something. It was a switch. And suddenly I was free. And the universe was saying, you're done. Your job here is done. Go be you. Do whatever you want now that was it. And I instantly asked for my divorce and six months later was free. That was it. It was not easy being a single mom. You know, the rest of my story with the kids, I was had a scarlet letter on my chest everywhere I went. Um, And especially that I asked for it. So this was also a big blow to a man's ego and uh, his entire family. Um, So there was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of objection, a lot of resistance, even from my own family. Like, are you crazy after two decades of building this man's empire and making all this money and now he's finally rich and you're going to leave him for some other woman to take all of your hard work? And, and I said, yes, may she and he be happy. <laughs> I wish them nothing but happiness. I have to go. I have to, I have to get out with no money. I have to. And I left with no money, no nothing. Uh, and started
0: from zero zero so Mm. alhamdulillah all is well now all happens for well um people in the u.s listening to this might not know that um like after divorce they have to get equal split the wealth or whatever they have earned that doesn't happen in most of the other countries no
1: No, we don't get half of anything. (laughs) No, no, no. In fact, I got nothing at all. And I was lucky to have gotten my children. Because for many years post-divorce, there was always that threat that I'm going to take the kids. I'm going to take the kids. I'm going to take the kids. So I always had to be vigilant and alert. And always... I lived in fight or flight mode for so many years. Always worried that... I'm going to lose my kids. I'm going to lose my kids. I have to do this to not lose my kids. I have to do this to not lose my kids. I have to make money to not lose my kids. I have to I have to be really good in society and look like a really good woman so no one will say I'm a bad mom and I have to do all the right things and there was always that stress and fight or flight and just kind of existing day day by day. Uh fear, living in fear mm. constantly. Um so yeah, uh it's it's not it's not like it is in the west where you can go to court and ask
0: for half of everything and no it's pretty casual there right like it's it's as if you're breaking up with a boyfriend or girlfriend like it is okay let's not get there you actually answered my next question which was what drives you so initially i think it was your pain and suffering and then it was your children
1: yeah and uh, now it's uh, injustice. It's it's my way of contributing. It's my responsibility. You know, when God gives you a talent, you are responsible to share it with the world for good. I really believe this. Not everybody has to follow that, but I believe what is the point of being talented and what is the point of being having this personality that God gave me, which is like, I'm, I, I will challenge myself and I will go to the next thing and wake up and... Do the best I can do, and you know, fight and da da da. What is the point of having all that if not to make the world a better place? There's absolutely no point in it. It's it's a waste of a talent in me, you know. So for me, that's how I see it, and for me, it's a responsibility. So now, for me, and my kids are older. I'm just waiting for my youngest to uh, to be to reach 18, and once Khalid is 18. I'm truly free then in the sense that I can be um, independent of fear. I will not have that fear in me anymore. And I will not be in fight or flight mode anymore. And I can be in a different stage of my life. Uh, So that is to come in in a couple of years because he's like 15, 16 now. Mm. Um, But so now my responsibility is to help people be aware, help people open their eyes, uh, Make sure that women who are abused have a safe space to go to. Uh, children are safe. Even the LGBTQ community that are very, very much the underdog here, uh, and it's illegal to be part of that community. And it, uh, you know, you can go to jail, you can get killed for it. Uh, they are very much part of my community as well, in the sense that they're they're the underdog. So. My work is about giving a voice to the underdog in society, not necessarily just my society, but all of the societies that are underrepresented. So I am giving a voice to underrepresented voices around the world, even because I can, and because I have been punished and I took it and I don't Mm -hmm. care. And I'm happy to be punished again for it. I don't care. I can handle it. Other people may not handle it. another artist, if this happened to them, would could be depressed and not work again exactly, and, you know, but I can handle it like bring it on. I can handle it uh I'm stronger, and how I how did deal you with
0: it. deal with everything where where like was it just these kids and the situation that were guiding you, or did you take help of um psychiatric medicines or other tools or things that people usually? go to as first options?
1: First of all, I wasn't able to afford therapy. Therapy was very expensive in Kuwait, so I could not afford it. I was a single mom trying to make ends meet. I didn't have enough money to pay the rent or put food on the table. It was that bad. So I couldn't have the luxury of therapy. Uh, I didn't want to experiment with drugs or pills because I've seen people around me go a really bad way with that. I have one of my best friends who committed suicide, uh, actually because she was going through similar things to me, but she went the route of medicine and drugs. And so for me, that put a bad taste in my mouth. So I was always too scared to, I always wanted my full brain with me. I like not even pot, like nothing, nothing. Like I don't even smoke cigarettes, okay? So for me, I'm very pure. I keep my mm-hmm. vessel very pure um, so that I can deal with things in a way that I know what I'm doing so that later I won't say, oh, very, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I,
0: with a very because, clear mind, you're totally yes, in control of yourself. There's no yes, You're not yes. giving the control up to any substance. No,
1: No, I will never, what? ever, ever allow anything to be in control of me, not human being, not drug, not alcohol, no nothing, because then then I've lost then I've then I've lost.
0: You then have I've lost what you have stood for.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. So no. So for me really it's always been my kids that have been the driving force for everything. I want the world to be a better place for them. I want this society in Kuwait that I'm living in to be more accepting of them because all my kids are different. None of them fit in with the society here. Um I want, after I'm gone, that they, they see how I live my life. They see the truth, the transparency, that they can see me as a role model. Um, and hopefully they can be themselves. It'll give them courage to be themselves. I don't ever want them to change for anyone else. So, yeah.
0: You're a big example for them, like, living that life. Uh, not settling down for any um, harassment or anything, any social constructs. Um, Growing up, you, okay, before that, you mentioned Scarlet Letter on My Chest, even in the poem that you had read, and even when you're talking about yourself. What does that mean? What does Scarlet Letter on a Chest mean?
1: It refers to the book, The Scarlet Letter, which is being ostracized for something that everyone else does it's being it's being singled out and pointed at that you're a bad woman you're slut shaming okay uh for things that everyone else in the society does but i'm just transparent about them mm. so i would go out and quote like this you know um i would you know i'm tattooed um mm. Uh, I would, uh, if I'm dating someone, I will go to a restaurant with my date and sit opposite the man in a public restaurant and not care about anything because I'm not doing anything wrong. Mm. Um, all of these things are frowned upon in, in, in this country. You're supposed to be a hypocrite. They raise you to be a hypocrite. You're supposed to do everything behind closed doors. You're su- So you have all these girls and women who are dating and having a free sex life behind closed doors. In public, people think they're angels. And that is acceptable. That is how they want you. And because I'm not like that, and because I am honest and transparent, and what you see is what you get, that is not acceptable at all in my society. Mm. That is shameful, brings a bad name to the family, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera.
0: Mm. In one of the paintings, and a couple of times you have also mentioned that the hypocrisy um, these people who ban the works, they themselves have a lot of mistresses and other things that go on behind, and nobody talks about
1: Absolutely, hundred percent. These are most of them are married men who have mistresses and who who are putting guidelines in Kuwait that people shouldn't drink or shouldn't party, for example, but they themselves, you know, get caught with booze and and women and partying and drugs. So I I like to expose them in my work, but obviously the the faces are made up. I'm not copying these people's faces. Uh, These are just general Arab faces that I painted. And Mm -hmm. I've always got some kind of a mask. I used to have some kind of a mask on them to Mm -hmm. show that this is their mask of hypocrisy, that when they have the mask on, they can actually be themselves. And when they remove Mm -hmm. the mask, they have to become hypocrites uh
0: and not allow their true self to show i want to talk about exhibitions and then we'll go to the signature round a set of questions that we ask all guests and it's fun to have their uh, subjective answers to them about exhibitions uh the first you started with uh, of course the first show which got sold out but then again when you did which got banned and now the first nft exhibition in kuwait how did that happen did you face any resistance for that or how did it how did you get the idea of it how did it yeah. go and how how was it afterwards
1: it was a couple of years after my my second show was shut down and i went to the gallery owner where the, my show was shut down ironically and i pitched the idea to him i said listen you've always been a pioneer i've always been a pioneer Let's do this together, give me your space, your gallery. I want to do Kuwait's first NFT exhibition and this is something that eventually will come to the country, people will get on board eventually, let's be the first to do it. Let's show the world what's going on out there, let's show Kuwait what's going on out there in the world and let's let the world come to Kuwait as well. So he saw it as a very win-win and obviously it's not my work. So there was no reason for the government to shut it down because it wasn't Shuruq, Amin paintings. It was the work of 100 international artists. So it's fine. Mm. It's curated by me, which is fine. There was no law against that.
0: Mm. Uh, And so... So are you saying that nude artwork or artworks which are in your genre done by somebody foreign are okay to be displayed in Kuwait and they won't shut it down?
1: um i don't know about the genre again you have to be careful with nudity you have to be careful with religious things political things mm. so no sex mm. religion or politics uh mm. and i had to turn away a lot of work
0: by, Ah, okay by so art. you curated all those work it wasn't yes. that uh yes okay, i got had it.
1: to turn away a lot of work and make sure the artists understood that mm. there's no nudity or politics or religion mm. and then it was their choice whether to submit something new Hmm. or withdraw hmm. uh, and so that's I had to curate it that way uh, and censor another, yeah
0: another brilliant idea after that was your exhibition in Qatar for the FIFA that was so yeah. brilliant uh, can you just share a bit of what was that and then I want to know what inspired you to make that
1: well that was pretty that was pretty amazing um, I mean they came to me and and they came Who to they? me instead- the museum came to me and said that they wanted to do their first NFT exhibition for the World Cup, for the Qatar World Cup. And so um, it was a, a collaboration between the museum and, uh, um, what was that company called? I forgot the name of the company, uh, Aramco, I think it was as well. Um, and so they wanted a curator that understood nfts understood the culture in the gulf understood qatar understood uh, all of that and so there the was you know there was only me <laughs> and so
0: and, i
1: was happy to do it um and what was the fantastic- concept
0: was also so unique that yes the painting stays as long as you the team keeps winning can you tell a bit yeah. about that
1: the idea yeah the idea of the concept is it's real time NFT drop. So basically let's say the the game the match between so it's basically it was uh I think it was like 30 was it 31 artists or something 31 or 33 I forgot numbers mm-hmm. of the, the teams. Okay, anyway. So basically let's say the match between Argentina and Saudi Arabia the artists, I had to pick all the artists, each artist from that country. So the artists from Saudi Arabia and the artists from Argentina would basically, um, they, each, one, each one has done a, 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 an abstract image with certain cues I've given them, like think of the, the, uh, the football field, bird's eye view, using colors of the, from the flag, colors Mm. of the football jersey, that sort of thing, has to be abstract, no figurative. And then the the AI generation, the the, the program would take these two paintings and merge them together and then add to them how many goals were scored by this team, how many goals were missed by this team, uh, how many penalties there were, All of these factors were factored in as symbols. So goals were little circles that would show up on the painting as dots. If it's a filled up dot, it's a goal. If it's just a line of a circle, it's a missed goal. And things like that. There was all these symbols. Penalties were like choppy lines. And these were all added to the painting to create an abstract image. But that was also a roadmap to that match and would drop in real time. So as soon as the match ended, within seconds or a couple of minutes, the NFT would drop based on exactly what happened in that match. And anyone looking back, if you go back to the entire collection now, at the museum, uh, at each screen, you would know exactly what happened in each game or each match of that uh, World Cup by looking at that painting.
0: Artistic uh, journalism in sports and record keeping all in one. (laughs)
1: It was, AI, it was yeah. it
0: is it is beyond i mean this is a very unique and innovative concept
1: it was really co- combining art with sports uh really a combination of art sports and technology
0: and how 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 did the auctions go or that wasn't the goal of the museum no we did
1: not do any auctions we did not do any auctions we felt that it didn't make any sense to auction um we wanted to keep it as just a you know, just an NFT exhibition as the mm. first uh, ex- NFT exhibition for the museum, for Ithra'at Museum. Um, you know, and it's it's an homage to the Qatar World Cup as the first World Cup played in a, a, a GCC country.
0: Wow. They're great uh, memory. I have seen photos of our friend Cedric who has been a guest on the show also, visit there. Um, and I'm so glad I had list of people from different countries that I was able to share with you. Um, I don't know if you got to it was of help or no, but uh, yeah, it is very good to see that collaboration with people from around the world for one particular event or the task. And I thought that would be a good idea, even for the show, like talking to one person from each country, at least one expert, maybe in art or no uh, we're doing pretty good on that, though. So, yeah, check mark to quit today. Um, these are now signature questions, open ended, and we ask this to everybody. And feel free to answer in whatever ways you want. So, the first question is: three people, living or dead, that you'd like to have lunch with. Can you name three people like that?
1: My father who's dead. I'd like to bring him back. Uh, Elon Musk. (laughs) And uh,
0: Madonna. And if you had to ask them one question, like different question from different person, what question would that be?
1: One question for each person. Oh, gosh. Madonna, I would ask her, would you collaborate with me? That's one. I'd want to collaborate with Madonna. That'd be so cool. Elon Musk, I would ask him... um, I would really like to get into the nitty-gritty of his brain and how it works. So I'd probably ask him uh, a lot of little questions about how he thinks and where he sees things going and... Just, I, I just want to know how he functions because I, I, I do it I know he has Asperger's syndrome and my son has that too Khaled has that too so I'm just curious to see if, it's, if it functions in the same way or not and my dad um, I would just ask him what he thinks of me and if he is proud of me or not
0: hmm That's it. Um, you. I mean, I. I want to rewind and touch back on this point. You are not like, I mean, look, reading your bio, and you're not not like an ordinary Kuwaiti woman because you have been speaking English and um, you have been influenced. You have got a very international exposure by your parents, I believe. So, how was it growing up, and? Did you feel foreign in your own country?
1: 100%. Yeah, 100%. My dad my dad was one of the first Kuwaitis to study in the UK. One of the first six to be sent by the government to study in the UK. So that oh. already was very rare.
0: By the so government? So he came
1: back. Hmm? Yeah. yeah.
0: You were sent by the government?
1: My father, yes. Hmm. So when he came back, he studied in Norwich. Uh, when he came back, he wanted to instill that that British sensibility into his family because he loved it. Um, And so he put us in a British school. It was, it had just opened up the school. And in fact, the owner of the school wanted my dad to be partners with him in the school, but my dad refused because my dad was worried about the responsibility of children's lives. He was very sensitive, my father, and didn't want to be responsible for any injury that happened to any kid in the school. so he put us in the English school and he would read to us every night from English books and every birthday, my birthday gift was an encyclopedia because back then wow. there was no internet and my father would give, because he see I love reading because reading was my way to explore the outside world and he was a bookworm and so he would lie in bed reading his book, which was something I was never allowed to read, his He'd read Harold Robbins and very sexy books like that. So I was not allowed
0: to read his books.
1: And then I was Did he sit have there with the secret book.
0: letter? Did yeah. You, did he I had have the scarlet letter?
1: <laughs> um yeah, of course he had it. Yeah. And so I would read my book for my age. Uh and he'd take me to the bookstore, the only bookstore in Kuwait that sold English books, and we spent four hours there in the bookstore. We'd come back home, there were no mobile phones. My mom would be livid, angry. Where are you guys? Why are you so late? You know, there's no way to get in touch with her. If we're gone for four hours, we're gone for four hours. Um, and every birthday, he'd buy me an encyclopedia or something. The one birthday, the last birthday before he passed away for my birthday, he bought me the entire collection of Nancy Drew. The Nancy Drew entire collection. So, yeah. Uh, I had the fifty-four books, hard copy books of Nancy Drew, for my last birthday before he left the world. Yeah.
0: That has definitely given you uh, advantage to progress. Do you? He was very cultured. He was. Yeah,
1: he was very cultured. He always there was always classical music playing in the house. He loved Bach and Mozart and Chopin. He loved uh, culture. He took us to Moscow. He took us to Spain, to Madrid, uh, Italy, France. He was a very cultured man. And that's why I had a very idyllic, beautiful childhood. And when he passed away, everything completely disappeared with him and changed 180 degrees. Because then it was like my Syrian mom raising these Kuwaiti kids all eyes on her, family watching her. Uh, she was not in a good mental health state when my father passed. She was pregnant with my sister. She was actually isolated from us. We didn't see her for nine months or eight months of the till she had the baby. So we were orphaned.
0: She we went, went to from Syria. Where did she go?
1: No, 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 no. She was isolated in Kuwait.
0: In Kuwait. She was taken away from us
1: from the aunts in the family because they she was trying to kill herself so they wanted to protect her so they kept her away Mm. because they didn't want us to see what was happening so they took her away from us we were sent to an uncle's house me and my brother and we were orphaned we were just all of a sudden from being ideal childhood to orphans no mother no father father's gone mother's gone in the same week Gone in the same few days. Gone, Uh, and so I lived uh, that very tricky Uh, age—the age where I got my first period and just become hitting puberty, uh, feeling very, very much alone, physically alone, and uh, holding on to my brother like as if he was my twin. Uh, And it was—it was horrible. It was absolutely. The one of the worst times of my life in that sense. And um, and then my whole teenage years, my relationship with my mother never really got better. Mm. I resented her. I didn't understand how a mom could abandon her kids like that at a time like that. I never forgave her. And of course, these were issues I had to deal with as I was growing up. I think my phone is running out of battery. <laughs> So these were issues I had to deal with as I was growing up uh, and dealt with later. And, of course, now I have a civil relationship with her. Uh, I love her. I I respect her. It's, you know, it's different now. But I had to deal with that. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. If today was the last day you lived, what would you do?
1: Definitely hug my children, tell them I love them, and just be with them. That's it. That's the most important thing, to make sure that they understand how much I love them uh, and tell them to give my computer to, uh, to my best friend to erase. <laughs> no, actually, I've always <laughs> told my daughter that, if, you know, when Two I die, I want, her, I want her to make sure that she does a retrospective exhibition for me with all my work. Uh, at a mu- at at one of the biggest museums mm. in New York, so whether it's the Whitney or the Guggenheim or I'm the Tate, okay, I'm happy with the Tate as well in London, but she's got to get me a retrospective in one of the museums.
0: <sighs> Let's go! I'll be there for sure, and I'll I'll help her in what if she needs something. All right, uh, what are your thoughts on India?
1: What are my thoughts on India?
0: What was the question?
1: Yeah. Oh, my thoughts on India. What, what are your thoughts um, on I've,
0: India? What is your impression about been, India?
1: Uh, look, I've been there once in my life. I was I was in New Delhi a long many years ago. Actually, I was I think nineteen or something. I went to New Delhi and I went to Jumla. I remember and I saw the Taj Mahal, um, and I remember thinking it was such a shock to be in a place where things were either really incredibly fancy and rich and glittery and wow, and then such poverty, such extreme, extreme poverty, living juxtaposed to each other was very shocking for me. Mm. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been there now, so I can't judge it now. Uh, This was when I was, Mm. this was, you know, decades ago. So... I feel like, I feel like, in with India, it's the same as a country like let's say Egypt. There's such talent. There's such history. There's such culture. There's such uh, civilization. But due to, I don't know, the, the politics or I don't know what else. Uh, inner in kind of inner conflicts the country doesn't evolve as it should and it's the same with all of us it's the same with kuwait it's the same with the rest of the middle east it's Mm. it's everywhere the only places the only places that are evolving in the third world let's say that are evolving rapidly and you know if they continue at this rate they could really uh, take over or excel in terms of culture i'm not talking about politics uh, are places like Saudi Arabia, where the the leader is so powerful mm. and strong and has the money to do it, and he's just like, "This is what we're doing, whether you like it or not. We're doing this. We're going to open up the mm. country. We're we're get, we're we're putting it on the map, whether the people like it or not." You know, and unfortunately, Absolutely. our countries need that. They need they need visionary leadership. Democracy doesn't work for us. I know every American will kill me for saying this but we are not ready for democracy we need visionary leadership because guess what the majority of our people are illiterate mm. the majority of our people are stuck to religion in an extremist way because they have no other choices because of poverty and so you can't change people you, you know you can't you can't depend on these people to be doing the voting that's the problem Mm-hmm. how is the country going to evolve then But you know like with Kuwait you we can have democracy see India in for
0: example you can see India for example we have a very strong leadership now with um, uh, Mr. Narendra Modi and we are doing quite well uh, getting there on the spot Good. and all things are getting done so yeah Good. Can, I don't know much about can it. I can't speak there. about
1: India because I don't know much about it
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, next question how to make money
1: Oh, May, if I knew that, I would be on my own private island right now. (laughs) I don't know how to make money. I don't know. I've I've never been the money type. I've never been good at making money. I've always been the person. I've always been the dreamer. I've always been the creator. I've always been the person that did what I love, even if it never made any money. I was always the starving artist. I was always the one that all my family said, you are so talented. You should be making money. Why aren't you making money? I don't know how to make money. Even with NFTs, I was the first one in there, you know, from Kuwait. I was the first one in there to do the the exhibition. I was one of the first women in Web3, the Middle East, you know, pioneering, etc. Have I made my my millions of Ethereum? No, I haven't. (laughs) Everything I've made has been spent because look at it this way, okay? 50% of what I make in profit and nft if i sell nft 50% goes to give charity i have a partnership with give charity and 50% goes straight to the charity and it's an international it's a it's a charity based in kuwait that is uh, accredited by the government of kuwait but it is international so it has uh, in africa america north and south america and in india and in asia and australia and everywhere okay um, mm-hmm. so 50% already goes to charity The other 50% I buy from other artists. I I collect NFTs. I'm also a collector of NFTs, so I support other NFT artists. I buy their work. So I'm left with nothing. (laughs)
0: Uh, So yeah, I'm not the best person to ask. What? Yeah. What is the best advice you have ever received?
1: Oh, yes. The best advice I ever received was document everything. Documents everything
0: yeah what is the most priceless gift you have ever had
1: we're not talking about kids right we're talking about actual things
0: no it can be anything it can be tangible non-tangible kids you know I mean it can be anything it's a very open-ended question so kids is your answer
1: yeah of course
0: my kids, yeah. What are your favorite book, movie, and food? Favorite book,
1: movie, or food? Okay. My favorite book would have to be uh, The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy. I think she's an Indian writer. That would be my favorite book. It just stayed with me, the way she describes things. I still remember her describing the mangoes. It was incredible. And uh, favorite movie, The Sound of Music is a, like, that's it. The sound of music for me was iconic. It still is to this day, my very favorite in my childhood and today. And food, I would have to say hmm, anything with custard in it. Oh. I have a weakness for custard, which is why I love Portuguese natas. Uh, anything custardy. If it's got custard in it, I'll eat it. That's my favorite. And I could eat it every day. So, yeah, that's my favorite my favorite book and movie and food.
0: If you could travel anywhere in the world, where would you go?
1: Um, I definitely would love to travel to an island in Asia, maybe Bali. I hear a lot about it. I've never been. I definitely am an island girl. I love islands. I love to be dropped on an island, wear nothing but flip flops and, you know, a a little dress or something, have a bicycle or a scooter and eat with the the people and, you know, um, live with the people of the island. So definitely to be an island. I've been to islands like Seychelles, Mauritius, that sort of thing. But I'm talking about more something like local. So maybe Bali, yeah.
0: For fun... What would you like to do for fun? I love to
1: travel for fun. Travel for me is fun. And if it's other than travel, then board games with friends or my kids. I love game nights. Me and my kids, we have game nights where we all gather together. We have all these tons of board board games and we play things we laugh we eat order food like it's so much fun i love to do it with my friends as well i don't have a lot of friends who love game nights my kids that's their favorite that's that's our bonding me and my kids is game nights so yeah game nights i need to find someone who enjoys game nights so i can add him to the, the family
0: what are what are your found uh, guiding principles in life
1: be yourself. Transparency, definitely be authentic. Don't try to copy anyone else. Be inspired, but be yourself. Um, white lies are sometimes okay. Believe it or not, I'm not the kind of person who says don't ever lie. Unfortunately, the reality of the fact is sometimes you need to. You need to. Um, the way to 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 really. Uh, have a happy life is sometimes to have some white lies in your life to whomever they are even people can have white lies towards you as well by white I mean something that's not harmful no cheating I'm not talking about cheating I'm talking about white lies like you know um, I don't know someone is dressed to go out and they're ready to go out and they ask you if their hair looks nice and they've spent two hours in the salon doing their hair don't tell them, no, it doesn't look nice for God's sake. Because they can't change it. They're going to go out with their hair and they're going to feel like shit for the rest of the night. Just tell them, yes, it looks great. You look amazing. Puts a smile on their face. They go out in the world with confidence. The confidence makes them look amazing. That's what I mean by white lies. Um, what else? Guiding principles. Uh, love, 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 love. I'm I'm a huge lover. I'm always in love with someone. There's always someone in my life I'm in love with, okay? Uh, Always be in love, keeps you young, Um, example, Uh, and uh, really just radiate that love to everyone around you. Tell the people you love that you love them, whether it's your kids, your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your cousins, your friends. Tell people you love them every single day, every time you see them. That's the most important thing,
0: yeah. What does art do for the world?
1: I think art changes the world. I think art is pivotal in changing the world. And this is why I, I, I feel a responsibility as an artist. And we spoke about this. I'm res- I am responsible for changing the world through my art. Uh, and I feel the need to do that because I have a talent and I can use it. Um, and so for me, art changes the world and... It's more powerful than politics because not everybody wants to get involved in politics. Politics is a little bit of a four-letter four dirty word. You know what I mean? It's not really four letters, but you know what I mean. So with art, you can change the world. You can impact people, you can affect them. You can change how they see things and you can make them aware of how you see things from a different perspective. And that's if you change one person, then you're on the right track to changing the world. It's, it's one person at a time, isn't it?
0: What does art mean for you personally? Hmm.
1: Art for me is uh, it's my identity. Yeah, it's my identity. And sometimes I try to escape it. Sometimes I try to be not an artist, just a woman, just a human being. And it's hard and sometimes impossible to be a human being because I am a woman and I am an artist. And uh, it's exhausting and draining. And it's not always a good thing, but it's my identity. Yeah, no escape. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the time you took uh, and your questions were very impressive, uh, very innovative, very creative. Um, yeah, parting words. So in the end, I just want to say thank you so much. Um, I appreciate what you are doing Tan May, and I believe that what you are doing is changing the world by bringing people to the world. Uh, an audience that otherwise would not be there would not see or hear these people, um, and I think your you know your 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 talent in that is your responsibility as well. Uh, so I appreciate you, um, and that's it. I I, I just want to thank you, thank the audience, thank everyone. It's such a pleasure to be here, and I hope I added a little bit of value in some way. Um, yeah, I'm just grateful. Um, thank you.